Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, the 12th of August. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Jan Fran. Jan is um, recording the podcast from home. How are you dealing with lockdown, Jan? You know what? I hit a wall, actually, probably about a week and a half ago. And um, and now I'm, I'm feeling a bit better. And I think that's because I've just, you know, I'm playing a slightly longer game here. Mm. That's just helped me improve mentally a little bit, but definitely hit a wall. Just like spontaneous crying. One Friday, for no reason. Yeah. So I'm taking it a bit easy on myself. You, how are you doing? You know me, rolling along with my normal sort of chipper stoicism. Mm. <laughs> I'm doing okay. We live in a nice spot so we can get outside to nice areas, which I think really helps. Um, but certainly get what you're saying about the expectations, which is always like a critical factor in, in how you feel about things. And they're just shifting, aren't they? They're just, just any sort of sense of dates going forward are just getting blown away by the daily case numbers. Yeah, and look, a shift in expectations has really helped me. Yeah, well, we're going to get deeper into this on tomorrow's episode, and we'd love to hear from you if you've got any reflections about life in lockdown. So many of us, millions, are, are dealing with this now as this Delta situation unfolds. So if you want to get in touch and be part of that episode, send us a message on our Instagram, send us a DM. Um, we might have a question from you about our guests or just a reflection. We'd love to make that part of the show. Um, in today's briefing, we're looking at the climate situation. You might have heard a lot of headlines this week, and that's because the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report came out. So in this briefing, you'll find out why that report's important and what it says about Australia. When you look at our exported emissions, our exported coal and our exported gas, we would rank as the fifth or sixth largest emitter out of 200 countries on the planet. We have no right to criticise anybody else on the planet. The UN's Climate Report, that's our briefing topic today. First, here are the big stories of the day. Cruel and uncaring. That is how the Australian Olympic Committee has described the South Australian government for making 16 of their Tokyo Games athletes spend a total of 28 days in quarantine. So the athletes, 16 of the South Australian athletes, landed in Sydney uh, where they're spending two weeks in hotel quarantine and then the South Australian government's making them do another two weeks of home quarantine when they return to their home state. The South Australian government says that there is a high risk of catching the Delta strain in New South Wales. That is principally behind uh, their decision. They do have a policy that forces anyone returning from New South Wales to spend time in isolation and they're obviously applying that policy to the athletes as well. Yeah, and the AOC, who are normally fairly um, mild-mannered and diplomatic, have slammed the decision in a statement saying it goes against the health advice and poses a mental health risk for the athletes who are all fully vaccinated. Yeah, I think that's a good point by the AOC. I mean, our athletes have been monitored from day one um, of arriving in Tokyo. They've undergone regular tests. They've had uh, enforced social distancing. So they've definitely done all of the right things. I think the South Australian government is taking no chances here with the Delta virus. It's seen what Delta has done to Queensland, to New South Wales, to Victoria. It doesn't want a bar of it. At least they'll get to quarantine at home and not have to spend 28 days in a hotel room by themselves, which would just suck after you've gone to the Tokyo Olympics. Yeah, there have been exceptions made along the way, though, and I reckon this is a justifiable one. So it'll be interesting to see if they back down at all over the next couple of days, but so far they haven't. 
There are COVID concerns for Indigenous communities in far western New South Wales. Eight local government areas, including Walgett, Burke and Dubbo, have gone into lockdown. Yeah, that's right. Walgett went into lockdown after a man was released from jail and travelled to the town. Um, Dubbo was also put into lockdown after two new cases were uncovered there yesterday. Now, some of these towns are 30 to 40% Indigenous, and, and this population is particularly vulnerable to the effects of COVID. So that's certainly worrying the authorities there. Here's the mayor of Walgett, Ian Woodcock, speaking to the ABC. People live in pretty close contact. You know, it's just a shame that if it did get away, we just hope that they are able to, you know, do the best they can so that we don't have to go through any great dramas or anything. Yeah, meanwhile, a Sydney man uh, alleged to have caused the lockdown of Byron Bay and the state's north coast by travelling from Sydney uh, was charged with police for breaching health orders. Yeah, so the reason this man gave for travelling was to inspect real estate, which clearly the police are contesting. Uh, It's reported he also failed to check in properly along the way and that his wife had COVID and he spent time with her in hospital before he left. Now he has it, so do two of his kids. They're in Lismore Hospital and the whole region's in lockdown. Yeah, uh, Tom, this is the last thing that New South Wales wants at the moment. Uh, Just in the last 24 hours, the state recorded 344 new local cases. It's moving into week eight of lockdown. Those numbers are not going down. Um, And we heard the the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, say that it would continue to be hard for people through September, potentially even reaching October as well. So, you know, we're really hearing her talk about dates well past that August 31st deadline where the lockdown looks increasingly less likely to be lifting. Good news for Queensland. The state's now lockdown free after restrictions were lifted in Cairns. Here's the Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk. Who would have thought a week ago we would be in this uh, position today? So well done, Queensland. Um, It's absolutely tremendous. Yes, well done, Queensland. Um, Very happy for the state there. Of course, the Brisbane and the South East end lockdown was lifted at the end of last week. Shame we can't give you good news about Melbourne. Uh, The city there has extended its one-week lockdown by another week. There are too many cases and too many cases, the origins of which are not clear to us. Too many unanswered questions, too many mysteries for us to safely come out of lockdown now. Dan Andrews there. They had 20 new infections yesterday. Five of them were mystery cases. If it does end next Thursday, as now planned, the Melbourne lockdown, they will have spent 200 days locked down since the beginning of the pandemic in total. Oh my God. I do have to remind myself of that all the time. I know we were talking about hitting a wall during lockdown, you know, Melburnians having spent 200 days in lockdown. I think that just makes them legends at this point. You know, anyone that can go through that and come out the other side, good on you guys. In terms of Queensland, the state recorded four new cases yesterday. They were all linked to known infections. They were all in isolation. The state's also started a mass vaccination hub at the Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre. Just to give you a bit of context on where vaccinations are at state by state, Queensland has 22% of its population, over 16s, fully vaccinated so far. Um, All the states and territories are coming between 20 and 30% of their population fully vaccinated. WA lagging behind at just 20%. Tassie, go Tassie, 29% of its adult population fully vaccinated. And bad news for Julian Assange. Uh, The US has won the right to contest evidence that helped him avoid extradition to the country. Um, Assange's lawyer successfully claimed in January that the WikiLeaks founder shouldn't be sent to the US because he has a very high risk of suicide. 
after a judge accepted testimony about the 50-year-old's mental health. Yeah, overnight, um, the US government was granted the right to call into question the evidence given by a professor about the Australian's condition um, after the witness admitted the fact that Assange had fathered two children with his fiancée. Um, Julian Assange appeared in the London court. He appeared via video link from a British prison where he has been for two years uh, since he was removed from the Ecuadorian embassy in London. He faces 17 espionage charges in the US and one charge of computer misuse. The charges all carry a maximum of 175 years in prison. All right, Jan, we'll talk about coping with lockdown with you on tomorrow's briefing. Um, Right now, Katrina Blouse is about to join us as we look in depth at the UN's latest climate report. Hey, Katrina Blouse, did you see that climate protest at Parliament House on Tuesday? Yeah, I did, and it was pretty full-on. Those environmental activists spray-painting duty of care in Mm. huge red letters on not just the front wall, but also the pillars of Parliament House in Canberra. Their government has a duty of care. Yeah, they also set fire to a pram in front of Parliament House. as well as setting off a flare outside the lodge where the Prime Minister stays in Canberra. It's an emergency! So all of this was in response to a landmark UN report on climate change that came out this week calling it a code red for humanity. It was the sixth report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and basically it warned that global warming is proceeding faster than we expected and could hit 1.5 degrees as early as 2030, which here in Australia will mean more of this. WA's once-in-a-decade storm has left tens of thousands without power. A massive bushfire that threatened the capital during Australia's black summer. Days of torrential rain have turned parts of eastern Australia into an inland sea. An ember storm raining down. The firestorm fuelled by erratic, ever-changing winds. So why does this IPCC report matter so much? And what does it actually say? Professor Will Stephan is a climate change expert and a researcher at the Australian National University in Canberra. He's also a counsellor on the Climate Council and he joins us on the briefing to break this report down for us now. Will, thanks for joining us on the briefing. Why does the IPCC report make such big headlines? How does it come together? Who's involved and what gives it its credibility? Well, it's based on literally thousands of peer-reviewed research papers around the world. It's put together by hundreds of the world's leading scientists. And these reports come out on average about every seven years. So they are basically reviewing, assessing and synthesizing an enormous body of of research out there in the literature uh, to give us the very, very best picture of what science is saying about climate change, about how, in fact, we can observe the climate changing, about what the risks are uh, and some projections about what we might face in the future. So it is the authoritative report on what climate science is telling us. All right. So say you were going to go through that report because it's a big report with your highlighter. Which sections or which phrases really jumped out at you? Some of the phrases that jumped out at me are that the climate system is changing faster now. It's accelerating. Temperature is rising at a faster rate than it was 50 years ago. We're losing polar ice. 
at four times the rate we were losing in the 1990s and so on. The second thing that I think is really important is a, a message of urgency in terms of getting on top of this problem. When we look forward to where the climate system might be going, this report sets out five possible scenarios of emission trajectories from us humans but only one of them could possibly take us into a safe space in the future. And that's a very narrow pathway, and it's closing fast. So the message there is if we want to avoid a potentially catastrophic future, we don't have much more time to dither. We have to act now. And the third thing I would sort of highlight with my highlighter pen, we're getting to the point now where already we're seeing dangerous impacts of climate change. We're seeing them around the world, the massive bushfires in Australia, the bleaching of the reef, but also the massive flooding in Europe is enormous heat waves up in Western Canada and so on. So these are all warning signs that we are imminently in danger, if not already in danger. Yeah, what stood out to me was that we could hit 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels as early as 2030, so by the end of this decade. Now, when you contrast that with the Paris goals, where we were talking about limiting our overall climate increase to 2 degrees or ideally 1.5, to hear that we could be hitting it as early as 2030 was quite alarming. It is alarming, but uh, probably even more so is all five of those scenarios actually transgress 1.5. So even the most ambitious scenario in terms of emission reductions by about 2050 will be at 1.6. And we'll need to learn how to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it safely to get back down to 1.5 or below. We're going to go past 1.5. The Earth is going to feel the impacts of temperatures above 1.5. That's already baked into the system. We can't avoid that. As I said before, we have to keep the temperature rise to as close to 1.5 as we possibly can, and then learn how to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. So you mentioned the Black Saturday bushfires, which, you know, is on everyone's minds when they think about climate change. What else does the report kind of highlight for Australia and our region? What could happen in the next 10 to 20 years? Okay, so looking 20 years out, a lot of impacts are already baked in. We cannot avoid them. Extreme heat is going to get worse in terms of the intensity of the heat, the frequency we feel heat waves, and how long they may last. Obviously, fire weather is going to increase again because of the excess heat, and also further increase in droughts, uh, particularly in the southern and eastern parts of Australia. In the north, up across the top end, they're likely to see an increase in heavy rainfall, more river flooding, and so on, and more intense tropical cyclones. So we're going to see more of that that's baked in, and we just have to prepare ourselves for that over the next 10 to 20 years. So was there any good news? Because we have seen a big growth in renewable energy production and some world leaders like Joe Biden in America and Boris Johnson in the UK have been pushing the world to take stronger action. What does the report say about the most likely trajectories on carbon reduction and how much impact will that have on these temperature increases? The number one thing that we have to do is get out of fossil fuels as fast as we possibly can. I think their optimistic scenario still is a little bit too late in terms of hitting net zero. That doesn't hit net zero till around 2050 or so. We need to move faster than that. Uh, The Climate Council recommend us here in Australia reaching net zero by 2035. 
and the rest of the world by 2040. And that's a common view among scientists, is that we have to do better than 2050. We've got to aim for 2040 globally to hit net zero. So part of our PM's response was to point out that Australia only creates about 1.3% of global emissions and China is in fact responsible for around 30%. So what is happening in China? Are they taking much action to reduce their emissions? They're taking more action than we are. So we have absolutely no right whatsoever to criticise China. Another point is that climate change is driven by cumulative emissions since the Industrial Revolution. China has only recently become a big emitter. When you look at cumulative emissions, the United States is much, much bigger than China. When you look at per capita emissions, and this is what I use, the number of emissions per person in your country, we have more than double the emissions that China does. So we have absolutely no right whatsoever to criticise China. The other point I would make, China does have a net zero emission target. That's by 2060. Hopefully they will move that forward. We do not. So we are the laggards. The other point I would make is when you look at our exported emissions, our exported coal and our exported gas, Mm. we would rank as the fifth or sixth largest emitter out of 200 countries on the planet. We have no right to criticize anybody else on the planet. I imagine when Scott Morrison said that, He was trying to appeal to voters in regional communities who would be worried about losing those big industries like coal. How do you explain the trade-off to people in those communities who fear losing those jobs that China still does emit so much, around 30%, and why should they take the bulk of the economic pain here in Australia when it's not going to solve the global problem? Look, it's a collective action problem. To give you an analogy, we all pay income tax relative to our income. My income tax is far less than 1.2% of Australia's revenue, if you want to make an analogy to Australia's 1.2% of emissions. On your argument, I should be able to write to the Australian tax office and say, well, my tax is so small, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to pay it anymore. I would get thrown into jail if I did that, and quite rightly so. Everyone has to do their fair share. We are in no position whatsoever to point the finger at anybody else. In terms of people out there uh, in the fossil fuel industries, I think the issue is transitioning, transforming our energy systems and our export systems to renewables. We have enormous opportunities in Australia, not only to power our own economy by renewables, but to export green hydrogen produced by renewables up into Asia, to export electricity directly into Asia. Actually, that will generate more jobs in the bush, more jobs in regional Australia. So the issue isn't in losing jobs. It is actually implementing a transformation to a new economy and new technologies. That's what we need to be focusing on here in Australia right now. When I read reports like this, and it is such grim news, I just feel so helpless. Like, what what can we as individuals do? What can young people do to push the needle forward on this? Everyone can do something. And my advice here is whatever you're comfortable with doing. Some young people are out there in the Extinction Rebellion taking very strong action uh, to stop the fossil fuel industry. As long as it's peaceful, that's fine. Some people uh, aren't comfortable doing that. But anyone can write a letter to your MP, ring up your MP, talk to your neighbours, reduce your own emissions, support solar. There's a lot of things that individuals can do. And we here in Canberra, for example, we're not a big city, but we're already 100% renewable in terms of our energy systems. And it's a lot of people pushing the system here to change. That's actually what what actually has caused that. Well, Stefan, what did you make of the protesters in Canberra? On Tuesday, they spray-painted duty of care on Parliament House and set a pram on fire. 
It's a very strong statement. Some people may not agree with the approach, but you have to look at the motivation behind. These are young people. This is their future. Their future is being sacrificed for the continuation of the fossil fuel industries, even when we have good alternatives. Although some people may not like those tactics, you have to look at where those young people are coming from. They actually understand deeply the threats that they are facing from the fact that we're not getting on top of climate change. That was Professor Will Steffen from the ANU. So, Tom, we always have these chats between us about, you know, like what can we do at a micro level and Mm. what can we do at a macro level? And, you know, we talk about the upcoming federal election and what can be done to convince those communities that we need to act on this stuff. And we kind of need tangible career pathways, don't we? Yeah, it seems like the, the politics of climate change in Australia just go round and round in circles. I think the circuit breaker really will be providing alternative jobs to people in those coal communities because those electorates can swing elections. They were really important in in the last election in regional Queensland and Scott Morrison knows that. He's very attuned to the political calculus there. So, you know, often we've heard, oh, there'll be lots more jobs and we've got to build the transition um, Mm -hmm. into renewable energy, start exporting to Asia, as Will Steffen was talking about. But instead of promises, those jobs need to be real and they also need to be specifically targeted to those parts of Australia that want those secure jobs with good salaries. So I think once we can do that, it's going to be easier to take those people on the journey with us in this transition and reduce our emissions here in Australia. Listener.